Okay, we are in Acts chapter 20, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. But what I want to do is I want to focus in on a certain concept today. Uh, and, and, uh, and the reason we're choosing this is because <clears throat> the topic is, 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 is hit upon in this chapter. And so we're going to reflect on it a little bit. See if we can, we, we can uh, learn how to, to maybe, maybe uh, not worry so much about other things and, and, and focus in on, on what God has called us to. So in Acts chapter 20, we had started it last week, but uh, let's start reading in verse 2. When he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was... He was about to set out to sail for Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychius, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. So what I want to focus on is just look at this one little portion. It says in verse 6, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So the we is Luke and, and, and uh, uh, Paul sailed after the days of unleavened bread. That is the seven days after the Passover. So Paul is still observing the days of unleavened bread. And then, and then uh, um, I want you to look down at verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Well, I thought that, that Paul was past the law. There were 613 commandments given by Moses to the children of Israel. 613. We've been freed from being under that law. But Paul wanted very much to be back in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. When is the day of Pentecost? Pentecost. Penta. 50. 50 days after the Passover is the day of Pentecost. And in fact, Shireen and I were just recently in Israel and they were celebrating the Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. That's the day that Moses uh, uh, came down, that Moses received from God the Ten Commandments on that mountain. That's the day. So, so uh, um, and, 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 well, actually, that's the day that he, he ended up coming down from that mountain. 50 days after the Passover, this is what occurred. The day of Pentecost. So the first day of Pentecost was actually that, that time when Moses came down from the mountain and, and uh, uh, all the children of Israel were dancing around the golden calf. That was the first Pentecost day. And, and uh, he wanted to be back there. Well, why? Was Paul saying that we should be celebrating the Feast of Pentecost? Was he saying that we should be partaking in the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Was that what he was suggesting? No, he never suggested that. Paul himself partook of the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Paul himself observed the Pentecost. But he never put it upon us. Because we are freed from the law. 
And so what I want to focus in on today is legalism. Because very often young people are caught up with what is right as Christians to do and what is not right. Well, we are no longer under the 613 commandments of Moses. Do this, don't touch this, do this on the Sabbath day. And, and even today, if you wanted to live by them, you could only live by about a third of them. Two-thirds you can't live by because they revolve around the temple sacrifice. And that no longer, there is no longer a temple and a sacrifice by which you can observe that. But there are, interestingly enough, about 150 commandments in the New Testament that we are told to observe. And in fact, nine of the Ten Commandments are written in New Testament commandments to us. Nine of the Ten. The only one of the Ten that's not there is the observance of the Sabbath day. But nine of the Ten are there. And those 150 can actually keep us quite busy. So we have plenty that we can be about. Plenty we can do. And we don't need any special leading. We don't need any special revelation to obey what's written in the New Testament. That is clear. That is what we are supposed to obey. And that's it. We can put whatever we want upon ourselves. But we're not to put anything beyond that, upon, anything like that upon another. So in other words, I can take whatever I like and put that upon myself beyond that, those 150 or so commandments. That's fine. That's not legalism. I can put it upon myself. But as soon as I say, you should do this too, that's legalism. You see what I mean? We can put whatever we want upon another. And I want to focus in on, on what legalism is. Uh, the church is full. The Christian church is full of areas of legalism that it has brought in over the years. And I will share a few of you. Most of you are too young to, to really appreciate some of the things that I'm going to share. But let me give you some idea. Uh, it was said, for example, Christians don't play cards. And, and uh, uh, in, in fact, I was saved 30 years ago. And I remember, you know, that was Christians don't play cards. Well, now, and especially Baptists don't play cards. You can go to Second Baptist Church, a church that I love, tremendous church. You can get a deck of cards that says Second Baptist Church on the back. Christians don't play pins, which meant bowling. Now, this was 50, 60 years ago. Well, you can go to First Baptist Church and they have a bowling alley in the church. Well, has God changed? No, because these were rules set up by men. Christians don't use dice. And so, in Monopoly, they would have a spinner, because Christians don't use dice. Well, the, re the rationale was, Christians don't use dice because thugs use dice when they, they gamble. Gamblers use dice. Well, thugs use cars when they rob banks to drive away. So maybe Christians shouldn't use cars either. You see what I mean? This is illogical ra uh, rationale that has been set up by the church that was never supposed to be. So, I come from a Jewish background. People say, aren't you glad that you don't have to live under those commandments? Well, what happens is the church has set up a number of other quote-unquote commandments that have nothing to do, that have no basis other than church mentality. But they are not given in the New Testament. And I'm here to proclaim to you that you are free of those. You are absolutely free of those. If it's not in the New Testament, you do not have to observe it. You can if you want to, but you do not have to. There was a day where the church said that 
if you wear glasses, it is a lack of faith. So that was a hundred years ago. If you wear glasses, it's a lack of faith. You are to trust God. And so Christians would walk around terribly nearsighted. They couldn't wear glasses. And, and, and uh, you know, what about LASIK? Is that okay? Is that a lack of faith? So, so uh, um, uh, there are things that, that have been brought in. Let me give you another one, which you, you may hear today. Christians don't drink alcohol. You shouldn't drink alcohol. Now, it's not as common as it used to be. Now, let me tell you right now so that, so that I can be upfront with you. I don't drink alcohol. But I don't put that upon you because there is no such commandment in the New Testament that we shouldn't drink. In fact, it's contrary. Paul actually exhorted Timothy to drink for his frequent stomach ailments. Jesus turned water into wine at the Feast of Cana. And what will happen? You will even see evangelical Christians change the Word of God. Something that is anathema to them. Change the Word of God. And they will say, well, when Jesus did it, He made the fruit of the, of, of the vine, not wine, at Cana of Galilee. Well, actually, both Greek and Hebrew have a perfectly good word for grape juice. And the Greek does not use grape juice. It uses the word wine. Jesus made wine at the Feast of Cana of Galilee, and it's the only thing that fits within the context. Jesus turned water into wine, not into grape juice. But personally, I don't drink, but I don't put that upon you. Why don't I drink? Well, the first reason I didn't drink is because when I got married, even before I got married, when I got, even before I was engaged and I met Shireen, I could see that she came from a culture coming from Pakistan where people didn't drink. It was against the law to drink. And so if I picked up a beer or something that her brother would serve to me. I wasn't going out buying beer. I mean, I would drink it. And it bothered her, but she never said anything to me. But I could see it bothered her. So, to me, drinking was not important. So I didn't drink. That was it. I just gave it up. Because this is my wife. And I could see it bothered her. So I didn't do it. Now, I'm very thankful I don't. Because I've demonstrated to my kids that I don't want that. And because of that, they weren't experimenting with alcohol all the time because I do realize that what parents do in moderation, children often do in excess, so I'm glad I never did around them and, and, and that I didn't do it. But I don't put that upon you. You are free to drink according to the Scriptures. And in fact, there, there is, there's, actually, there's actually a verse uh, uh, that, that, that actually talks about uh, how good it can be. In, in, in Psalm 104, verse 15, I mean, and this is why we really have to be careful about saying, you know, what God likes, what He doesn't like. I mean, if you look in Psalm 104, the psalmist is praising God for all the wonderful things He's provided on earth, like, like, like food for people and, and, and thing, things uh, uh, for people. So, for example, in, in uh, uh, Psalm 104, verse 14, He causes the grass to grow for cattle and the vegetation for the labor of man so that He may bring forth food for them from the earth. And wine, which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil. And food, which sustains man's heart. So he's praising God. And he praises God for wine. So you have to change the word of God to put upon other people that thou shalt not drink. You see what I mean? The church does this. So let's look at what legalism is. Because Paul himself 
had Timothy circumcised? Because Timothy was, was a pastor with him and he was a Jew, but circumcision actually predated the law of Moses. And it, was a, and it was a commandment for Jews long before the law of Moses. But here, when it had to do with, with uh, uh, the Passover, with Pentecost, before he was rushing back to get back for Passover, but he missed it. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, he still observed all of this, but he never put it upon us. Never put it even upon other Jews, because that was the law of Moses. He himself wanted to do that. If you look in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 8. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 8. There's a whole passage on, on, uh, uh, on, on this sort of topic. Romans 14, verse 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Not, for not one of us lives for himself, not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord. So that's Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 8. So what do we see here? It says, uh, um, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. I have had Christians come to me and say, you know, Christians really ought to be vegetarians. And I say, on what basis? They say, well, you know, they give me all sorts of reasons. But this is exactly what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures say that some want to eat vegetables only. Well, fine, eat vegetables only. And there's this view that those who refrain are the stronger ones. I don't drink, so I'm stronger. I don't eat meat, so I'm stronger. No, the Bible says the one who doesn't partake is weaker. He says, one person has faith that he may eat all things, in verse 2, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The vegetarian is the weaker one. You see, the one who has faith to partake in everything that God's given, everything that we're free, is the stronger one. But we get this view that, oh, look what he abstains from. You know, I have had people, just to show you the extreme that this has gone, I have had people build up the sense that, hey, you know, that guy is so holy, he doesn't even have sex with his wife only when he wants to have children. And, and uh, um, as if this is some act of great holiness. You know, so all other times for the rest of his life, he's refraining. No, the Bible says he's terribly weak. That, that, that uh, uh, there is here in the Scriptures a clear admonition that we are to be free. So what do we see? The one who is weaker is the one who refrains. The, there's to be an attitude of mutual respect for one another. See, we all have the right to our own mind on amoral things. These are amoral. They're neither good nor bad. They're amoral things. And what we don't do, or we, what we do do, is for God... And in this, we should show thanksgiving. And you see here, it says in verse 6, He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. In verse 5, 
One person regards one day above another. I have had people keep great conviction. You didn't go to church on Christmas Day? Huh? What's Christmas Day? First of all, Christmas Day is never found in the Bible. Jesus was born probably not on Christmas Day. And, and, and probably he was born around the Feast of, uh, of Tabernacles. But in, in any case, there's nothing about December 25th in the Bible. Even our Easter Day is probably not the real Easter Day. It's, it's, it's the westernized, the Catholic Church's version of Easter Day. Uh, 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 three days after the Passover. You know, the Jewish calendar goes by a very different calendar, so their three days after the Passover is a very different day than ours. So if it's really a very important day that you be in church on Easter Day, you probably got the wrong day. You see what I mean? Some people regard one day higher than another. Fine! They're the weaker ones. Some people regard every day alike. The Bible doesn't even say you have to be in church on Sunday. Although I'm in church every Sunday, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, do not forsake the gathering together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as the day draws near. That's in, Rome, in Hebrews 10.25. Or Hebrews 10.25, that's right. So, it says we are to gather together. But in that last portion that we just read in Acts chapter 20, they're actually gathered together not on, uh, and, 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 uh, on Sunday. Actually, and Sunday starts Saturday night because the Jewish day of reckoning is Saturday at 6 p.m. at sundown starts Sunday. So they were meeting together Saturday night. So you want a textual reference? Well, the believers were meeting together for that meeting on Saturday night. So everybody who goes to Saturday night meeting is more spiritual. But that's Sunday morning and, and, uh, uh, to them. That's the beginning of Sunday for them. But never does Paul say in the epistles, you have to worship on that day. All it says is, don't forsake the gathering together. I think it's a wonderful practice to get together. I think it's good to serve one another in the body of Christ, and we're supposed to do that. We're commanded to do that. But you see, the parameters upon us. Jesus has elevated the parameters. You know, being in Israel, we had these discussions with people, and, and I, I was... Uh, sitting in this car with this Orthodox Jew, and he says, he says, uh, you know, you Christians have no framework. So even though I was born and raised a Jew, he knows I worship in, in, in Christian circles. He says, you have no framework. You have no rules to live by. I couldn't do that. He says, in Judaism, we have all these rules which keep us set. I said, no, our commandments are higher. We have higher commandments. I said, because it gets at the heart. What is the most difficult commandment of the Ten Commandments to observe? The most difficult commandment of the Ten Commandments is clearly the commandment, Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's male servant or female servant or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to thy neighbor. That's what it says. Why is coveting so hard? Because it gets at your heart. Every other commandment is, is, is don't do any work on the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother. Something that you can get a hold of. Coveting gets your heart. What did Paul say? Paul says, as unto the law, I was perfect. Paul was perfect under the law. Except he writes in another passage, except coveting got me. I coveted in all sorts of ways, he said. The one that gets at the heart is the one that got him. What did Jesus do? He elevated it to your heart. 
So the Bible says in the New Testament that he who covets is equivalent to an idolater. He who covets is like idolatry. The Bible says in, 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 in Matthew's Gospel, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. Whoa! That's pretty profound. Before to commit adultery, you had to really go sleep with a woman. Now you just look upon her with lust for her, you've committed adultery. What did Jesus do? He raised the bar for us as believers. Because everything again and again in the New Testament, He gets at our heart. So let's look at another passage on this. Romans 14, verse 14 through 22. And I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is good, good thing be spoken of, it, of uh, as evil. And so if you read through that passage, what you find is that nothing is unclean or sin in itself, whether you eat it or don't eat it. Uh, now, that's not to say that some foods aren't better for you than others. And if you want to eat, if you want to eat uh, fat back every day, you can do that. There is no sin in that. It's just stupid. It's just stupidity to eat fat back every day because your artery is going to clog up and you'll die at 40 if you live that long. But it is not a sin. It's just not wise to do that. So nothing is unclean or sin in itself. If one considers it a sin, it is a sin to him. And if he doesn't consider it a sin, it's not sin to him. We're to limit our freedom by the law of love for the brethren. So this specific passage talks about if it could offend your brother, then don't do it in his presence. It's not that you should never do it. Or else, you know, there's Christians that that are offended by everything. So if you were to add up all the offensiveness of all the Christians in the world, you couldn't do anything. It means that in their presence, you know, so if, 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 if one believer is, is you know, a, a, a vegetarian, you know, you don't bring, you know, a bag of McDonald's hamburgers to his house and smile at him and say, let's, let's eat together. I mean, you don't do things to raise an offense. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, the last thing we learn that is, 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 um, is, is you're happy if you don't condemn yourself in it. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4 through 13. 1 Corinthians 8, 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is, and there is no God but one. For even if there, is, there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not condemn us, to God, we are neither the worse if we do eat, nor the better if we. We are neither the worse worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. If someone sees you, who 
who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined and the brother for, whose Christ, for, for who Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So what he's saying is that food was sacrificed to idols. Very hard. You, you know, a lot of food was sacrificed to idols. And what Paul's saying is, go ahead, you're free to eat that. But if someone who has been involved in idol worship sees that, and you know that the food has been sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it in their presence. That is like this. If you are around a, a recovering alcoholic, you may want to, out of freedom and liberty, to refrain from drinking around that person. Because of the pain that it, it, it can cause them. So you see that in that passage, that, that again, in this passage, nothing is sin in itself. We're free to eat. Uh, we are to uh, be guarded by the effect that it's going to have on believers in their presence, and we're not to do it. And, and uh, uh, the weak have a problem of conscience uh, and with amoral things, and the strong have no such problems. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, verse 11, 1, talks about how we are even to watch how things not just affect our brothers, but even non-believers. So if something can have an effect on a non-believer, you watch out about doing it. Uh, let me give you an example. Let's see if I, I, I could think of an example. If, if I'm fellowshipping with Jews, there's certain things that I might not say. Uh, you, you know, so, so Shireen and I had, had dinner with some dear Jewish friends in Israel who are Orthodox Jews. Well, I didn't just go in there and say, hey, how you doing? Jesus is the Messiah. You know, there, there are things that I refrain from in their presence so as not to raise an offense. And the Bible says it is good. I am free to say Jesus is the Messiah. But I didn't say it in their presence because I knew the effect that it would have. So we had a delightful time talking about the Old Testament. Um, uh, so, so, you know, the, the scriptures are pretty clear that we have freedom and we have to observe, those, we have to observe certain things. Let me mention something about stumbling blocks. Uh, when biblical support is lacking, Christians will often say, well, we're not to be stumbling blocks, so don't do things like this. So, for example, don't go to movies. You, you don't remember this, but, but uh, uh, older Christians used to say, most of them have died off by now, but older Christians used to say, I don't go to the cinema. They never quite understood what they were talking about, but they, they prided themselves on the fact that they didn't go to the cinema. Well, when you think about it, well, what was wrong with the cinema? So, so they didn't have any problem watching the same show on TV, but something was bad about the cinema or the movie theater. Well, what's bad about the movie theater? Is it what people do on the back row? Well, people do bad things in public parks, too, so we shouldn't go to public parks. No, so, so the logic begins to break down, but they'll say, if you do that, you can be a stumbling block, and we're not supposed to be stumbling blocks. Romans 14.21 says, don't be a stumbling block to your brother. But these are not valid stumbling blocks because stumbling blocks in Scripture were always set up, were always there because of the culture of the people. So the culture of the people said that uh, 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 there, there were certain practices that we were to refrain from. So when 
Uh, in Acts chapter 15, you may remember that they instructed the disciples uh, uh, not to eat things sacrificed to idols. Not that it meant anything, he says, but because you're surrounded by Jews where you live. So this is going to offend them, so don't do it. There was a cultural practice. But when the stumbling block has been set up by the church, it's very different. Church bylaws set this thing up. And so, so this is not what they're talking about. So let me summarize this to you. All amoral things are in themselves, are clean, and are not sinful. There's nothing inherent in cards, dice, wine, or other things of that nature that would make them wrong for Christians to use. The stronger and more mature believer is the one who is free to do these things, feeling no pangs of conscience. And, and one, of the things, one of the things that people will often uh, uh, speak about is, 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 again, you know, there's this sense that, that maybe the person is really spiritual. Let me show you in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, there's this classic portion that you should be aware of. Because I want you to know that refraining from these things does nothing for you spiritually. Does nothing. In fact, gives you a false sense of security. In, in uh, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse, let's start reading at verse, say, 20. If you have died to Christ, to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So, I've had Christians come to me and say, you know, Christians really ought to be vegetarians. So I didn't even know you were a vegetarian. How long have you been a vegetarian? Two weeks. Christians really ought to be vegetarians. So all of a sudden, you got this revelation. And for two weeks, you're walking as a good Christian. And now you're putting this upon others? The scriptures are saying here, you know, you say, do not handle, do not touch. He says, this... These matters have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement. You know, I'm going to beat my back with a chain. You see how spiritual I am? I made it bleed. I'm really spiritual. Self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. And they have no value against fleshly indulgence. They will do nothing for the struggle within your mind against sin. They will do nothing to keep you from sinning. All of this is self-abasement. It does absolutely nothing for us spiritually. We take rules from the New Testament and we follow them. Let me go on to summarize. The weaker believer is the one who has problems with immoral things and so refrains. That's what the scriptures say is the weaker one. Uh, While the life of liberty is encouraged as superior living by a set of... Is, is encouraged as superior, living by a set of rules is in itself never condemned, only discouraged. The situational ethics for the strong believer are based on the principle of how the action in a giving situation will affect another, primarily how it will affect a fellow believer, but also how it affects unbelievers. And, and lastly, there can be no set of rules or principles which will work in every situation other than the principle of love. But the action must depend on the situation. Let me give you an example. We were sitting in, in a Jewish home, 
in Israel. And I know wine is a very important thing in that culture. All of their feasts have wine. Very, very important. And this one man said, you know, one of my chemistry students set up a winery, set up a, a, a vineyard. And I bought this wine especially for this evening for you and your family. Now, when people give us a bottle of wine to take home, we always say thank you and we take it. And when we get home, Shireen will cook with it or she will give it to the Catholic neighbors. And, and, and they're very thankful for this. And you say, well, this is kind of hypocritical. You won't drink it, but you'll cook with it. Yeah. I mean, remember, this is, this is just my own set of rules. And, and so I'm not putting this upon anyone. But he poured wine in a glass. I said, no, not, not, none for us. We don't really drink. But he still poured the wine anyway. And I realized how important it was for him and his culture that around this meal that they were having, that we partake. So I had a few sips of his wine. And everything was okay. Because I didn't want to bring offense to this host of mine. So there is a situation that I yield on this thing. Just so as not to raise an offense with my host. Because there is no scriptural commandment. Had there been a New Testament commandment, thou shalt not drink, I would not have touched that alcohol. But you see the difference here. This is what we're to live under. What I'm proclaiming to you is freedom. There was something going on in the church. Just to give you an example. that the, the men's meeting had gotten together and they were talking about how men we should you know, affirm our sons and all of this. And I was all for that. And then they said, you should... And they were following this book, this men's group was. And they said, uh, you are to have a service for your son where you proclaim him a man. You know, and some of the kids were like seven years old and proclaim him a man. And then it goes on in the book to say you should actually have three such services throughout their, their, their growing up. At this age and this age and this age. And you take a sword and you put it on his shoulder. This, this, is, this is actually a heathen practice. And, you know, you know I, I, I called Roger in the church. I said, Roger, what is this? We're just supposed to have three such events? I said, I'm not going to tell a seven-year-old you're a man. In fact, I'm not even going to tell my 13-year-old you're a man. I say, you know, the Jews do this. Well, the Jews do it. That's rabbinic law that comes from the Babylonian Talmud. That's not in the scriptures even for them. And that just means he bears responsibilities for his actions. That I'm to proclaim him a man? I mean, there's a lot of boys, you don't want to proclaim a man. This is silliness. If a father wants to do that for his son, fine. Yes. Let him do it. But he's not to put this upon all the other believers there. And especially, where did he get the three different times you're supposed to do this throughout their growing up? From where? What Bible verse? You see, we are not to put upon other people, no matter how great we think the theory is, we are not to put upon other people our own pet ideas. Unless it's in the Scripture, then the Scripture puts it upon them. And to that we can show them and say, hey, this is what the Scriptures say. Scriptures are very clear on divorce, for example. Scriptures are very clear on how we treat our parents. In the New Testament, it's all there. But it has nothing to do with when you proclaim your son a man or anything. Scriptures are very clear. We're supposed to teach them the ways of God. But we don't put upon others no matter how good it sounds. And this is freedom. I want you to be free. So when somebody comes to you and says, you know, you really ought to do this. They say, okay, show me in the New Testament where it says that. Show me. And live freely in Christ. Take whatever practice you want 
You take that upon yourself. I wake up very early in the morning and spend time with the Lord. And I do it upon my knees with the Scriptures open I read. I never tell you, you have to read the Scriptures on your knees. Never say, you have to get up in the morning and do this. It's not a bad time to do it. I can suggest it. Maybe you want to do it at night. Maybe you want to do it whenever you want to do it. That's up to you. It may make you much stronger to have a consistent time. But you're not commanded to do it at a certain hour. Be free in Christ. And put upon yourself that which, whatever you like, within the areas of liberty. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these young people. And I pray that you would give them the freedom in Christ and also the heart to walk out the things that we are commanded to do. Father, I pray that as they read the New Testament, they would see the things that the law of Christ has put upon them and they would walk in it. And the things beyond that, Father, that they would choose or not choose according to the leading of your Spirit. Father, I proclaim upon them freedom to walk with you and to enjoy you. And I pray, O Lord, your blessing to be upon them. In the name of Jesus, amen.